not only is Yale on stolen land, but it is upheld by the labor of black people and by separating itself as an elite institution against the masses of people who lack access to these institutions. How can I have this revolutionary heart and spirit and intention and still be so deeply entrenched in this institution that's trying to assimilate me into a place of, quote, class mobility, quote, upwards class mobility at the expense of my psychological health and cultural health. Hello and welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you. I'm Lily Mandelbaum and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are Style Like You. Each week we bring you interviews with diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style, self-image, and identity. Being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. If you fall in love with our guests as much as we do, you can see them in their full self-expression on our YouTube channel and Instagram using the handle at StyleLikeYou. And if our stories open your eyes or are transformative on your own journey towards acceptance, please consider becoming a member of Style Like You on Patreon so that we can continue creating a world where everyone feels comfortable and safe in their skin. To support our work, head over to patreon.com slash you. Over the years, Chantal Lingerie has been a great supporter and believer in our movement for self-acceptance, and we are super grateful to them for sponsoring this episode. Family-owned and headquartered in Paris, Chantal Lingerie is committed to balancing style, quality, and function in every garment. Chantal Lingerie adapts to women's needs to provide the perfect fit from A to H cups in a variety of shapes from plunge to full coverage. Listeners of this podcast can take advantage of free shipping on any order by going to Chantel.com and using the coupon code STYLE at checkout. That's Chantel.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. I am here today um, without Lily, it's Elisa, with Nema Gatere, who is 21, but I feel like I'm speaking to someone who is thousands of years old at the same time. I had to stop myself from asking 10 trillion questions immediately because of the absolute Fantasia experience of her style. Nema is um, an Africa enthusiast, a, a portal curator, at the Africa Center and a guerrilla educator. Um, these are all things, especially the guerrilla educator that I personally really relate to. Educating ourselves in a non-traditional way is really essential right now to our enlightenment and to our coming out of our deep, deep ignorance. So can you um, talk a little bit about what your style says about you? Wow. My style, I think, is a testament to my own experience just of motion, my experiences of diaspora, my experiences coming of age in a wild world and having to like find my footing in that and really piece together who I am, taking pieces from different places and different relationships. So like right now, for example, um, I'm wearing clothes that belong to people who aren't me because most of my style is like friends, you know, who'll be like, oh, I feel like this would be great for you. And they just give me their clothes or like hold on to pieces. I like to mix vibrant colors with things that are very traditional to me. So right now I'm wearing some Maasai necklaces um, and that's my great grandmother's tribe. I'm very intentional about always representing my culture, especially when I'm not in Kenya and I'm away. I feel like like style to me it's an essentially cultural expression and 
I'm extremely blessed to be able to know like what my cultures are and to have access to that and to feel pride in that because there was like this whole, you know, project of colonization that tried to stamp that out of people like me. So my style is very much so a resistance against these systems that have tried to tell me what I should look like and how I should express myself. Um, it's an expression of my gender fluidity and my resistance against binaries that I think are also very constricting and very colonial. It's a hodgepodge mix that makes me feel free. Can you talk a little bit about the details? Like I'm looking right now at a rainbow color of hair, braids, <laughs> braids tied in circles. Yes, bantu knots. They're called Let's bantu hear it knots. all about it. Yeah, so I've... I've pretty much always braided my own hair, actually. Um, but since moving to New York, I've done it even more so because things are so expensive out here. So I have my rainbow-colored bantu knots with some four braids in the front. What is a bantu knot? Um, so it's braid buns. And so I have like six of those but the ones in the back I ha I just left them out as braids and they're very thick I've been on this really interesting hair journey I decided like two months ago that I wanted to travel the rainbow with my hair and see what the different colors would bring out so I started with red hair it's a color that is in a lot of flags because it represents blood but for me it represents you know that strength and communalism that is really foundational to my life and to all of my work um so i started with red and i loved that it was the boldest i'd ever been and from red i went to a mixture of orange and yellow and that brought out a very fiery playful energy in me um and then I ended up skipping green because I couldn't find a green that I really liked, but I found like this rainbow color, right? So at the top, it's purple and then it goes to blue um, and then, you know, green, yellow, orange, red. And it's the whole spectrum at once. And it's interesting. It's taken some adjusting to get into because it is darker up top. And I don't I usually don't do dark colors. Um, but I really like that it encompasses the whole the whole spectrum. So that's the dark hair. to light. Dark to light, exactly. Kind of like the times we're in right now. Right. So have you always been so expressive like this with your hair and with your makeup and with your clothes? I've always been expressive in my own way. I always say that the first university I ever went to is a university of black feminist Tumblr and Tumblr exposed me to a lot of aesthetics and ideas and I always loved playing around with that so I remember I like shaved the side of my head when I was like probably 15 so I just had like a frohawk type thing going and I really liked that um, but I'd say it's since moving to New York and being exposed to you know, a lot of the subcultures here that I've gotten way more expressive and felt more confident in doing that um, because I have, you know, been in pretty conservative spaces. And so a lot of my expression has largely been through language um, and been through writing and been in like more academically expressive modes. But I think now it's manifesting more and more into my fashion. I have my mother to thank for that. She is like a style icon, like she's yeah she's everything so i'm grateful like like in what way she's just she's always putting together the most unlikely pieces and items and she's also always like really held on to um 
are like Kenyan and like Kikuya Maasai jewelry in particular. Like it was her. It, so it was her grandmother that w- was a part of the Maasai. Yeah. Family? So um, her grandmother was actually abducted um, from her village by Kikuyu, um, like Kikuyu warriors, who who is like my mother's main quote unquote main tribe, um, and she was assimilated into the Kikuyu. So, so she is actually a product of the two of the two tribes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, so my great-grandmother's name was Nyavange. And yeah, the Maasai are who you think of when, or at least who the West thinks of when they think of Kenya. Like the warriors with the red cloak and the beaded jewelry. And it's sad. They've become, again, commodified into um, a token of culture. But that's a real tribe and a real people. And so me like wearing this jewelry and having that in my blood is really a reclamation of that being this like tokenized idea of Africanity and being like, actually we are flesh people and we navigate a lot of worlds and the Maasai are all over now. We're thought about as just being like nomadic um, herdsmen and, you know, the beacon of traditional ancient society. But we we're at the straddle of modernity in a lot of ways too. Not that modernity is an ideal. We've lost this idea of how, um, style and what you put on your body should have so much meaning exactly because people are so removed from the cultures that give them meaning and that give their adornment meaning that's the exact project of colonization is to remove people from meaning and assimilate them into empires you join the club you lose self Mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about um what assumptions people make about you based on your appearance yeah (laughs) it's really funny that's been also part of this rainbow hair journey right um because my hair is very bold and ultimately we live in an anti-black society right so people look at you and they make assumptions about your professionalism and you know what you might do for a living and etc etc and I always notice it on the subway like I see a lot of people just staring at me in this very invasive way, like so hungry to piece me together because, you know, they'll see me wearing these very bold colors, etc. But like, you know, reading a book on Rumi, I think people project a lot when, you know, when they see someone who is expressing very boldly and like everyone expects they're just like, oh, you must be an artist or actually everyone mm-hmm. thinks I'm a musician. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. one day I will be a musician, inshallah. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but I'm also a writer and a theorist, you know, and, and I'm a curator at this, at the Africa Center and I fill in a lot of roles. I don't compromise based on people's judgments and it's kind of fun, you know, for me to see what assumptions people make about me, not even just because of how I look, but also because I, I have a baby face. Like, I look really young, you know, um, but I... I have always like worked in spaces and been in spaces with people who are much older than me. Um, so they'll be like, you know, an event at the center and people will be like, oh, yeah, this place is cool. Like, how did you find out about it? And I'm like, oh, I work here. I'm the curator. And they're like, oh, it's like this moment I see of them in their head, like calculating, like, how could are you 12? Right. They're just like, how, but how old are you? You know, and I'm like, well, I'm not ashamed of my age. I, I spent my teenage years being like, oh, no one knows that, you know, I'm mature for my age. Now I'm very proud of, like I'm 21 years old and like I'm living this life of my own creation. And 
Like I I feel pride in my youth and I feel pride in my experiences and in my expression and you know if if yeah that it, it just is what it is for me. Have have there been times where you did conform more? Yeah, I mean there've been times in my life where that conforming like that conformity has been suggested and like coerced in some sense but in every space I encountered that it really just showed me how the value of resisting that because those are also spaces where I you know thrived the most by resisting all the places that are conservative that I was in you know call themselves liberal Colorado, especially where I grew up in, called itself a very liberal space, you know. The same reasons that people felt threatened by my expression is my by, by my expression are the same reasons that they felt a gravitation towards me and a curiosity. So like in Lakewood, you know, when I started wearing big bunt big twists my, you know, junior year of high school and or like sophomore year when I shaved the side of my head and starting wearing my hair natural, it was like oh, that's weird, but also that's so cool. It's like this very interesting binary that's like between fear and fetishism. The thing that people will tell you not to do is actually what makes you interesting, right? And what about college? College, wow. So, I mean, branching off of high school, I've always been very young. So I started school a year early and I skipped a grade. So my freshman year of high school, I was 13. Senior year, I was like 16, just turning 17. So when I went into college, I w- well, let me take it back. So when I was 16, I was applying to all these schools. So, you know, I applied to the top tier schools and I ended up getting to like Harvard, Yale, Princeton and Stanford. And so when I was 17, I started my freshman year at Yale. And it's wild. Like, like I said, like I spent so much of my teenage years being like, yo, I'm mad mature. Like, can not everyone see that? But it's now that I'm like, wow, I was really a baby. Like my my spirit and like there's my spirit was very old, but I was still very young in a lot of ways. Right. So I had mm-hmm. this like innocence. Like I was like, oh, this just looks cool. Like I love my like twists and this Yale sweater, you know. <laughs> um, and that was kind of like how I spent my freshman year. But I it was also the first time that I was actually immersed ironically enough that it's the first time I was immersed in like black friend groups because I didn't have black friend groups in Colorado I had a black best friend an African best friend um and so when I went to Yale I did this pre-orientation program that was like for all students of color and it just became like we had our squad like from first day of freshman year um so that's when I was just like oh my goodness like this is so dope I felt really included in Mm -hmm. like this black culture that was again it was like a respite for me Mm -hmm. but by sophomore year like the intense racism and hypocrisy and elitism of the outside spaces started becoming very evident right like how can you um so even my freshman year i remember i'd gone to a party with my friends it was this frat party and you know at the door they were talking about how they didn't want to let any more you know black or brown girls in you know yeah so this is my freshman year but we were just like yeah so we I remember we were like not in this space to be dealing with that we were also like kind of tipsy it was like our first week so we were just frolicking along we leave right and then sophomore yeah sophomore year then so you didn't really so you just sort of you just sort of passed it off you just yeah I was like man these bougie kids you know what I mean because it's one thing to notice things and then it's another thing to notice when they're a pattern and it's another thing to become conscious of how they're the whole system that you're operating in so sophomore year when a similar thing happened that I heard about 
I like post this status about it on Facebook and the status ends up going like micro viral. It gets like thousands of likes, like all the news outlets pick it up, like Time and Washington Post, etc. I was like, um, I just want to give a quick shout out to SAE, the fat members of SAE, you know, for having a party and saying white girls only at the door. And so that's what I mean. I've always been just like super sassy and like the digital Did landscape. Did it literally say that or it figured Yeah, it? no, it literally said that. It's like two lines. Like it, you can still find the like Facebook stuff. If To this day, if you like look up my name, like this whole there was quote unquote scandal. No, they were saying it at the door. Okay. Yeah. And this second party I was in at, someone had told me about it because they remembered what had happened sophomore year. I mean, freshman year. Um, and I was like, one, one second, like, this is suspect to have a party and to be saying that that's like mad rude. So it's also like side note, who wants to even be at that party? Exactly. That's ex- <laughs> so by sophomore year, I was not, you know, I was not messing around with any of these spaces. I was going to like black dorm room parties. Like me and my friends were just having our own things. Like I was not in that world, but I was like, y'all don't, you can't like just be doing this. But it's like not okay at the same yeah. time. Yeah. Right. So that all starts and <laughs> that is like the beginning of when I just start seeing the true head of this space come out, right? Because there are all these articles posted about it, obviously, even in like the school newspaper and in the comments, people are anonymously commenting like really aggressive things to me in particular, like with my name in their mouth, like being like, if you don't like it, why are you here? Like, aren't you even like this isn't even your country. Go back to your, like Africa. Like if this country is so racist, like. And I was spiraling. I was like, yo, like, this is supposed to be, you know, the top of the world. The bastion you know? of enlightenment. It's like, yeah. yeah. And, y- you know, I'm being the first person, in, like, in my family to go to college, like, in America and, like, in these spaces, it was such a big deal for me. Like, I, I, it's supposed to be such a privilege mm. to be in this space and, like, you know, to encounter such psychological social violence Mm -hmm. that really traumatized me. And I decided to leave campus and study abroad the next semester in South Africa. And I'd say, if anything, that's that experience is what made me who I am today, like studying in South Africa during the Roads Must Fall movement and Fees Must Fall movement and really being... Um, so it was a movement to decolonize the institution um, because there was a statue of Cecil Rhodes, who was a colonizer in South Africa. There was a statue of him on campus and the students were protesting to have it taken down and this institution wasn't listening. So a student threw a bucket of feces on the statue and t- had this m- like essentially made the statue be taken down through real protest. And that movement really took shape because of the labor of like queer black femmes in particular particular and trans people um, on campus who are fighting, you know, against discrimination and just colonial education. Like the majority of the professors were white. The majority of the students on campus to that day were white people, colonizers. They're talking about South Africa, a country that has just come out of apartheid, you know, 20 something years ago. And so seeing the level of protest that was happening on campus, because my semester, they were protesting a lack of accommodation for students. A lot of students were promised housing. Then they got to campus, you know, having their parents having spent their whole month's salary to buy this bus ticket for them to get to campus, only to be told that that accommodation had been given away to richer students who could pay faster, who didn't need it for free. So these students were left literally homeless when they got to campus. So they built up a shack in the center of campus. Um, 
the university told them they needed to take it down they staged they were like no the university bulldozes the shack down and students had been like living in there as protests so students like take it upon themselves to like burn like a van on campus like it was such real gritty resistance and i'm coming from yale where it was like people posting facebook statuses you know and like it was just like a really wild experience in my head to realize like wow this is a hyper elite space that is impossible to truly create revolution in because it's founded on colonialism not only is yale on stolen land but it is upheld by you know the labor of black people and by separating itself as an elite institution against the masses of people who not they're not uneducated but who lack access to these institutions and it became a lot for me to weigh that in my head. Like, how can I have this revolutionary heart and spirit and intention and still be so deeply entrenched um, in this in this institution that's trying to assimilate me into a place of, quote, class mobility, quote, upwards class mobility at the expense of my psychological health and cultural health. And right? like a, a sense of self, like basically it's demanding that you would have to repress and erase self mm -hmm. what what would you say is like been yeah. your inspiration the biggest inspiration to make you who you are at 21 years old yeah it i've been thinking about this a lot too because you know my mother and my dad like they have always encouraged me my my dad's really always encouraged me um He's deeply like loving and sensitive um, and affirming in every way. So he, he's always just kind of been like, you know, do what makes you feel most at fire. And my mom's kind of always been like, I know you're going to do what you want anyway, so might as well do it, you know. And she's in her own way, like very eclectic and passionate. Um, but she's definitely had a rebirth. Like she was very very pious when i throughout my growing up i used to go to three hours of kenyan church every sunday um so in terms of what made me this way it's like it's kind of cliche but i really think just being exposed to the internet and having this natural curiosity um because i'm deaf i'm like the wild one in my family like not even just my immediate family like my extended family like they're always like, oh, what's Nama doing now, <laughs> you know? Because mm -hmm. um, they know I just be wilding out. Like, I I don't feel an inclination to censor or please other people. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents tell me I've been like that literally since I was a toddler. Yeah, but they must not have, that, I think, is that because they didn't withdraw love? Yeah. You were able to do it and you were so loved. Yeah, I'm definitely. Assuming. Yeah, definitely. Is that true? Um, yeah, it's interesting, like. When it comes to my family, family, it's always been a compromise because it's a very African thing that like what happens in the family, like out of respect for the other people in the family, you, it's not even like talking about my own things. It's just like how it implicates other people. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's like one day I will write about a lot of the things that, you know, have happened and the things that we've gone through. And like, you know, recently I had to be very public about some of the things that were happening in my family um because my father had you know gone missing for like three weeks and um he wanted to end his life and that's something that I had to be public about to be able to rally resources for him um so that you know he could get back on his feet and do that and that was a very healing process because I realized like wow a lot of people 
don't get to see this kind of vulnerability from an African family, but it was also just very complicated because it's like there's such deep feelings of like shame and misunderstanding. Like it's one thing to be a young, bold African being in this world who has an understanding of the politics of anti-blackness and who can stand up for themselves. And it's another thing for another generation that is so conditioned in silence and shame and who doesn't politicize their experience, you know, in the same ways and like doesn't solicit empathy, right? Um, Because people can be very harsh and unforgiving about certain things, you know, things about like incarceration and trauma and feelings of abandonment and infidelity, like all of those things that play into these narratives of what broken homes look like, but are so much deeper and more nuanced than that. Like those are and things. also a result of the of the racism of systemic racism. They're, exactly, they're, they're they're happening because of it. Yeah, but I also just feel like racism is a word to a lot of people. It's a word that's easy to say and be like, oh yes, we understand that happened because of racism. But the depths of being like, mm-hmm. do you empathize with what it's like to go through that on a daily? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking each day, mm-hmm. like I don't just support myself. I help support my family. Mm-hmm. I contribute. I, you know, I do a lot of stuff and that's for me an everyday thing. It's not just a concept that I can speak about in papers or even like right now in interviews because it's such a physical, visceral experience. And so I think a lot of my, to go back to the question about what has shaped me, it's like not only been experiencing these things and having to create theory out of them through expression, like, you know, I might not speak directly about the traumas that I faced, but I am an embodiment of the survival of those traumas. And I think that um, something I always like to say is that should be enough. And that is enough. It's like, you know, to see me standing strong the way that I do and expressing the way that I am, it's all very intentional. And it's it's its own expression of this story. And I think as someone who lies at so many intersections, you know, like, African, like femme, queer, you know, poor, whatever, all of these words. It's like I'm so used to people being hungry for a narrative that it is empowering at the end, you know. And so instead of like always telling my story, I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to live the happy ending, you know. And that to me is like a very theoretical expression in practice. Like that's where theory meets practice. Um, and so when you say like, what made me like, how am I this at 21? It's a product of that. It's a product of babysitting my younger brother since I was eight years old and like not doing extracurriculars and growing up on the internet because I had work to do at home, you know? And like, I was going through things at home and I like found refuge in books and I found refuge in language. I love languages. Like I, that's that for me was a way that I could unlock parts of the world that seemed locked off to me. Like I traveled the world because the world felt like it was closing in on me, you know? So I very intentionally journeyed out and I sought opportunities because they weren't handed to me on a platter. Right. So when I get to a place like Yale, like I'm looking for all the resources to make things happen. Like it was after my freshman year, you know, I, I sat on this mission to visit 20 countries before my 20th birthday. And like, that's a huge reason and part 
an experience of how I am who I am today is like Mm -hmm. going to six different continents and meeting more people than I have names for in like everywhere from you know these big western cosmopolitan cities to like you know villages in rural Madagascar and Mm -hmm. like you know the Cape Colony in South Africa like it's an experiential learning um that I I really try and embody in every way and in every interaction and it's it gives me a deep sense of confidence and self-knowing that I realize is the ultimate you know pathway to my own liberation and to Mm -hmm. to my future is like always coming back to that as home base those are things that nobody can take away Mm -hmm. from you you know, is mm-hmm. what you've seen for yourself. I've mm-hmm. my learning is not through a book that someone mm-hmm. read that really resonated with me that it clicked. You it's know, your heart. yeah, it's like you know when I hear about um, really any topic, I can pinpoint someone I've met for whom that is a lived reality, and that makes things so much less abstract in the world to me. And it it gives a specific gravity to everything that I see and learn about because I know how much of a truth it is through people's flesh body experience. Um, and so I think if if anything, like people always tell me, you, know, you seem so much older than you are. And it's because this travel made me live tangible lifetimes. It's like I don't feel this. Um, there's. I feel an, I still feel eagerness, you know what I mean? But it's not idealistic. There's almost a gift of not being able to assimilate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I call it an experience in transcendence, you know, a test of transcendence. And reading Rumi and reading Sufism and all of these other ideologies that are r- deeply grounded in, like, love as a practice in transcendence, like having to endure so much pain and find a way to transmute that, like alchemize that within, make sense of it and grow. You know, it's like the same thing as when you burn a a forest down and the ash makes the soil stronger and allows, you know. It's the lotus coming out of the mud. Yeah. Finding that love, finding that source, finding that what that what is inside of you, what that love that it, that we are all born from and that we, um, and that does uh, abide in us, that mm-hmm. superpower, I will say it does heal you. It is the mm-hmm. ultimate healing. There's no living and being happy without self and without mm-hmm. the full self. So, you know, it's, you, you got to go there or you're yes. whatever. I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> but anyway, so what would you say is your biggest struggle? My biggest struggle is not, letting my pain manifest into bitterness um and i'd say it's a struggle again that i'm fighting each day um Mm -hmm. very actively Mm -hmm. but i have to work really hard each day to not be deeply triggered by things and to not let that run me off my path and to like not let that pull me to a place that like doesn't allow me to move in light um it's just a very toxic feeling that trigger like even just talking about it i can feel it like in my mm-hmm. throat and like in my gut i'm just like so disgusted by certain things and like particularly you know just little things like being on the train is really hard for me like the l train because i'm just like oh my goodness all these gender fires the other day i got on the l train and this um this like white woman gets on and she's like oh it smells so homeless in here mm. and like 
you know, like when my dad was missing, like he was homeless for that time. And like those things are abstract to me. And so it brought me to this place of like intense visceral anger that I had to actively be like, yo, just soothe, soothe, soothe that, soothe that, soothe that, soothe that, soothe that. And like send her love. Yeah. To say something like that means that you are not the homeless person when you are. Right. Right. Thank you again to Chantelle Lingerie for sponsoring this episode. We love Chantelle's belief that beauty and confidence don't have to come at the cost of your comfort. And that when you feel comfortable, your inner confidence and style will shine through. Chantelle Soft Stretch is a great example of this with lightweight, breathable, 360-degree adaptable stretch. Available in two one-size range bottoms, extra small to extra large, and 1X to 4X. Find lingerie that inspires and reflects the inner you and get free shipping on any order by going to Chantelle.com and using the coupon code STYLE at checkout. That's Chantel.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Leaving Yale. Yeah. But big risks have big payoffs. Um, yeah. I'd say... How long has it been? It's been a little over a year. I didn't completely drop out because, you know, I because I don't have that certainty yet and you have when you take a leave um you have 6 years to come back so if something happens between now and you know four and a half years from now and i'm like let me just go get it i highly doubt that will happen but if so it's there um but it it was a big risk and i'm i just remember realizing that it was the biggest risk because i knew it was this pathway of like my career or this academic thing and i feel it would it would honestly just kind of be awkward to go back at this point, having had the experiences and being placed in like the the spaces that I operate in now. Um, even the job I have right now, it's like I have a bunch of friends who are graduating now who've been sending me messages like, "Hey, is the Africa Center hiring? Like, I really want your job." All this stuff, and I'm you like, already have it. Yeah, and I'm like the irony, like you, the irony. <laughs> are there any sources of shame that you have? Also, leaving you. Um, because I've really had to fight this internal thing of trying to prove myself, trying to, cause I, I think for people who don't understand the levels, it's easy to be like, oh, it must've been too hard. And I'm always like, you don't realize like I, my first semester, yeah, I got all A's. Like it was, I've, it was never an academic thing. So the source of shame is feeling, fighting that self doubt of like thinking that others perceive that I wasn't cut out for that realm or that like. You know, that I got into like Harvard and Yale and all these places and now I'm just like some dropout, you know. So it's that's the one thing where I'm like always divesting like, nope, you don't have to prove yourself to anyone. And even if people think that it's just not my truth, you know, like it's literally not my truth. When's the last time you cried? Four days ago. I cry either out of immense gratitude or like deep frustration. I don't cry when I'm sad. My sadness manifests is just like a deep ache in my heart. That's one thing. My mom used to really get on me when I cried. She would be like, are you crying right now? It was a very weak expression to her. It was a tough love thing that I'm almost grateful for um, because her whole thing was like, you can either cry or you can find the solution. And I think recently I've really been trying to find a healthy middle balance between those things. Like you can cry and then find a solution. Um, because it, there is like literally this plug like I cannot just cry um, and if I cry it's just like usually just like when I feel my heart defrosting from something has your heart defrosted from something recently my heart's always defrosting 
from the f- deep deep friendships i have i have very romantic friendships like I- incredibly romantic friendships like you know a couple of days ago i was like oh my back hurts like i kind of want to take a bath my friend was like you want to take a bath let me make you a bath so like they just sent me this bath they like grabbed this rose crumbled it up put it in the bath they're like they know lemongrass is my favorite oil they're like let's put some lemongrass in there um and they're like do you want bubbles in your bath i was like yes <laughs> and so they used to like put bubbles and i just sat and took a bath and then like her boyfriend came and was like um can i take pictures of you in the tub so i was like yes and i was just like in the bubbles and i was just like have like little tears because i was just so wow. grateful like it was so romantic um yeah i'm i'm i love them so like even now i'm just grinning so much That's thinking amazing. about that i feel like i could cry thinking about them because like yeah it's it's like love my whole thing is love as a verb and those are people who always 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 show me love as a verb and yeah see like now i'm like oh. it's not a style yeah. like you interview if you don't cry <laughs> so now you're, you're crying out of happiness yes. which is cool <laughs> yeah what about romantic um right now i'm actually staying at my ex-girlfriend's place um in bedsty and that was my last relationship i really miss her (laughs) i love her so much um but she had like this family tragedy and like had to move back to brazil um and so since then like my heart's kind of just been like because you know what they say you don't know what you have until it's gone um so we were like classic lesbian couple like so uh, hot and cold like um for a while but then we were also like young and wild so like why is that classic lesbian hot and cold um because there's this like deep sense of like need in one another's companionship and love like but there's also so much in the world that makes that love challenging and the intensity of it um the intensity in combination with not really having many models of how to make a love a lesbian love a queer love thrive um in this world creates turbulence um it it often touches on like the most tender parts of you um the parts that maybe haven't been allowed to bloom or show themselves or that you didn't even know were there because they've been so distorted and conditioned um touches on those on those parts and yeah and at the same time you're like oh i never want to let you go mm-hmm. like let's like do something wild you know mm-hmm. um and that was very much so us and like i'm i'm a gemini i have mad gemini energy um and so it was funny yeah she like got my name tattooed it was like this whole like whirlwind like thing um so that's that's I guess intimate romance but I'm also um like very polyamorous because I don't think that monogamy is realistic and I think part of that comes from you know being in a home where infidelity was such a thing and now it's kind of like well you know monogamy is kind of a lie because you have these desires why not just be honest about it that's been a very liberating experience for me to be like i can have many loves and they take different forms and that's also balancing like my romantic asexual friendships with like my intimate physical emotional and romantic relationships in a way that's healthy and sustainable they all matter 
yeah they all fill they make your world yeah so when like one is precedence like over the other this sort of idea that oh if I find the partner and like that's it that's all I need which is how the rest most of the world functions like right I'm only good if I have that one person yeah and it's yeah it's just not it's not the way I have so many theories on that but and yeah, i think it's also just part nother. yeah it's a whole nother thing but it's also a, a part of this whole nomad thing like i've fallen in love in most of the countries i've been in you know and those aren't loves that i close off it's just like we'll see i'm a lover i'm definitely a lover yeah you're a lover <laughs> um when do you feel the most vulnerable when people call out my masculinity or my to- my toxic masculinity like being and this is it's really vulnerable even talking about this because it's not something i speak about publicly because it's something i think a lot of people don't understand but you know being gender queer and having a, a lot of masculine energy like in that's maybe encased in femininity um i feel really vulnerable when i just like feel that masculinity un- untamed kind of emerging and especially like in queer relationships like something i had to check in my relationship with my ex a lot is like i was just acting like such a dude sometimes <laughs> you know um and that's because i i didn't ever have anyone teach me how to be a man you know and like i meaning because you're you know in a feminine body, yeah. in a female body. Yeah, so you, exactly. You were never given guidance as to how to have ma- the mas- masculine energy. A healthy masculine, right? And I know, all, I know all the theory, you know, I know all of that stuff, but still like... So can you give an explanation, like a detail of that? Yeah, so like, it was just this thing of like, you know, my girlfriend's like this incredibly beautiful, incredible, loyal person who would like open her heart and she'd just like send me these very long messages. But like, I would just like get distant and I don't, I don't know how to like give examples of it because it's so nuanced because of all the levels. Um, and you know, it's also really rooted in dynamics of queer relationships, but it's just like, I feel vulnerable when my petite frame or my femininity overshadows the ways in which i really feel like a masculine energy but i also feel vulnerable when i'm trying to figure out what that masculine energy actually is right because i don't know how to na- like i don't fully understand it because i it's not something that ev- anyone ever like talked me through you're you're little and petite and and you know to the eye yeah typically feminine yeah what, what that's yeah. not really true yeah but like, it, you know i mean feminine is yeah. not that feminine is not yeah necessarily not strong or not or is ne- not necessarily petite yeah and so i think when i have relationships with um men with like cis men that vulnerability comes up because they like have this expectation of how I'll be in intimacy or the things that I'll like. Like, I remember, you know, I was being, I was like in this semi-intimate thing with this guy a while ago and I was sitting down and I was joking. I was like, sit in my lap, you know, I was telling him to sit in my lap and he was just like, what do you mean? And he did it like he did it, but he thought it was a joke, you know? And so I was just like, I actually wanted him to sit on my lap. Like it, it, that's what I wanted. And like, I wanted to put my hands around his waist. Um, and then, so I did, I like put, I like put my left arm around the, his side and he was like, stop with that funny shit. And I was just like, what do you mean? That's not funny. That's like what I want. Right. Um, and hmm. so I, vul- I felt vulnerable because I was just like, 
you feel you just projected that this thing was weird, but you also are just projecting that you feel emasculated by me stepping into this because I'm not adhering to this like cute petite femme thing that you want. Like you want to like just throw me around and experience me in this one way and control how things going and it's yeah. you controlling how yeah, exactly you're, doing. you're taking control of your feelings and how you feel in the moment yeah. and not wait uh, just just waiting for him to be the one that guides the situation and takes control exactly and he's actually the one who i would get in these really intense talks with about you know my masculinity and he would like kind of call me out on stuff i felt like he was like seeing through me so i would like take up more space and i sit with my legs open and like my body language would change and would become much more mask you know and he's like you're doing it right now and i was like whoa you know and so i felt vulnerable in those moments when we say feminine what does that actually mean right what does that mean, right? And so as soon as we say feminine masculine, we affirm these weird ideas. It's that a binary this one, that doesn't thing. even exist. It's, exactly. It's, it's, not even a tr- it's not even reality. Exactly. So it's like, why can't I just be and sometimes sit like this, you know, my legs open and like feeling, you know, powerful like a baby butch, whatever, you know, and also like do my eyeliner thing and like back it up on someone. Like it's... I really feel like that, you know, fluidity is an asset. And sometimes when I want to make sense of it, I need language. But then I'm and because language is empowering. It helps you deconstruct things. It helps you make pathways. It helps you journal about things. I notice these vulnerabilities around masculinity come out around mainly when I'm with cis men or with I, when I'm with like femme, like femmes. And I don't want to like, you know, be too slick or hypersexualize them like I always I like I really love women like I love women and I love like fe- like really femme people I, I I'm pansexual I don't even think of myself as bi I'm, I'm pansexual because I'm not obsessed with you know what your genitals are like uh, to me I connect to people um but like and I'm I'm very bold like once I've broken a certain barrier of trust but I always have trouble like making that first move because I never want to like be inappropriate or cross the line with someone because I understand that like femme people are hypersexualized in day-to-day life you know so I can be on the dance floor and this girl's like really coming up on me like dancing on me etc but I'll still not want to kiss her or like be you know express that mask energy because I'm like am I being like a douche right now like am I take am I just filling in this like dynamic um so I feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. then because I love I love kind of being that masked person I love being danced on all of that but I don't know how to continue that in a way that's healthy and respectful you know without without playing a role exactly without playing a role but I you know I want to be bold and like give someone a kiss on the neck and like initiate something but I also don't want to be like do you want this like it's just it's a very Mm -hmm. interesting line to be dancing um and that's all being recreated right now yeah when do you feel the most beautiful i feel really beautiful when i'm braiding my hair because that's like a a journey um and i feel really beautiful when i'm talking about something that i know my shit on like where like i I feel really beautiful and i'm like talking about theory or like talking about organizing um because i to me my beauty is is like a power that comes from within and a lot of the power that comes from within is from my mind you know it's like when my heart and mind meet out of my mouth then I feel just like Mm. 
fully present at every part of myself and I that makes me feel beautiful. Can you think of a moment like that? Yeah. Um like when I'm doing portal connections, you know, and like it's like a topic that I've curated and I'm I've I'm really excited about the audience on both sides. Like honestly when I'm talking about divest from Instagram, which I know we're gonna get into, like I feel really beautiful because I'm like, yo, like I'm really seeing things very critically and like I have certainty in this. What is that? What is your certainty about divesting from Instagram? There's this whole like attention economy monster that I think is descending upon us with the rise and not even the rise, like the viral spread of social media in our psyche. Um, and for me, divest from Instagram is really a protest against that attention economy, reclaiming the sacred space of our imagination and creativity and divesting from these gigantic corporations that are trying to suck our creation and claim profit off of it while you know actually really damaging the way we're able to create and what we create because now we have you know I'm on the train for example in the mornings and I see people everyone's either playing Candy Crush or they're scrolling through Instagram and their whole brain is just scrolling scrolling mm -hmm. scrolling consuming 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 it's this terrible attachment to an infinite consumption and a very constrained creation. Um, and so I started hosting these, you know, programs called Reflect to Revolutionize on divesting from Instagram and hearing, asking people, how do you think the algorithm impacts you offline? You know, our attention spans, what do you pay attention to offline? Because even like... I'll see people at a beautiful place, even when I'm traveling, et cetera, and the first thing they're thinking about is to post a story about mm -hmm. it or to take a selfie to share. It's really inhibiting our ability to be present mm -hmm. in the world in very damaging ways and ability um, and diminishing our ability to express without thinking about how to adhere to an algorithm that'll put us at the top, that'll get us people looking you know, at our things for the longest amount. Yeah, that will complete, I mean, the algorithm is basically designed to make us the most most simplified version of ourselves mm -hmm. like it's a quick response it's a quick moment it's mm -hmm. it doesn't there there isn't time there isn't it doesn't it doesn't acknowledge time it doesn't acknowledge depth it doesn't acknowledge it doesn't allow substance yeah it allows there's no substance it, it only mm -hmm. allows for impulsive quick um all the wrong things like yeah. like like um all of all of your nothing everything's shallow and superficial, basically. Yeah, and so the algorithm is calculated off of literally hundreds of factors, but the main ones are the number of seconds that people spend looking at your posts, the number of likes it gets within a certain right. um, time right frame. Right away. Yeah, and how many people are clicking to go to your profile afterwards. So it's literally um, a metric of the attention economy. And something I always say is your attention is a currency. If social media doesn't show you that, then I don't know what you're doing, but your time and your attention are a currency. So you have to think very intentionally about how you're investing them in a world that's mm -hmm. crumbling, you know, where we're, we had a government shutdown for 40 days and everyone's just still posting on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I was spiraling. And the irony is 
my research, my thesis research was around Instagram and how Instagram is cultivating a cultural renaissance, particularly for people of the Afro diaspora and connecting people beyond borders. And mm. I was a strong advocate for the power of Instagram. Like I presented this, the Instagram conference, everything. I was like, Instagram is the best thing ever. It has you that know? aspect to it. That's the problem. It That's has that. Yeah. But what we don't realize is you don't own your content on there. And the other thing I was seeing some of the most brilliant artists sharing their work on Instagram for it to just be forgotten a few days later. Like you can drop something. It's the most, it's taking you so much time, mm -hmm. attention. It's thoroughly researched. Mm -hmm. It's very high quality. And because of the consumption habits as that these pl um, platforms ingrain in people, it just gets lost there's in no the value. infinite scroll. Yeah. It's so damaging. So there's this, um, one anti-social media scholar, he actually was a co-founder of virtual reality. His name is Jaron Lernier. And he says, social media is actually a behavioral modification empire. Definitely. And I always just sit with those words. Behavioral modification it's empire. Someone once sent me this letter that Ados Huxley of A Brave New World wrote George Orwell in Whoa. 1949 that says, the system is going to find a way where... We don't have to be beaten into submission. We're going to be happily yep. jumping into submission. Exactly. Because what is Instagram if not a self-surveillance mechanism? You go everywhere and you're just posting stories. You're geotagging where you are. And this is owned by Facebook that is literally under all these lawsuits for breaching personal privacy. And when you agree, you know, to when you download the app, you agree blindly to these privacy policies that you actually don't know the meaning of because everyone else is on it. Right. It's this like herd mentality that has completely mm -hmm. sucked away our concept of self-defense and self-value and like true community. And it's it creates a very damaging facade of community. People leave mm -hmm. you to be like, oh, you have this huge following oh you mm -hmm. must have so many friends etc and also this thing of people who have large followings being assumed to be you know brighter or more mm -hmm. charming more etc it's mm -hmm. like those are all very more dangerous more successful. successful it's how how obscure is that especially if you think about how people are using these numbers not only buying these numbers mm -hmm. but using them for harm mm -hmm. i think about men in particular like photographers etc who have big followings and they use that to become predators to people who have smaller followings, who want proximity to that social co social capital, to those, quote, opportunities. And people act as if this wasn't an intentional project. There is no reason that a genuine social media platform should show how many followers someone has or show how right. many likes some, uh, I mean, someone's posts. I mean, it just sets us all up to hate each other. Right. Yeah. There's no reason for that. That was intentionally engineered to be part fear of this of platform fear of other you know and mm -hmm. even this feature of infinite scroll that was intentionally engineered so that you never want to stop these addiction oh God, habits have been coded into the apps and we're passively signing into it not realizing how much we're sacrificing of our own psyche and for me i could no longer live that compromise i was like this is taking away from who i want to be in the world i'm spending hours sacred hours of my days making mark zuckerberg richer by giving him you know my content by showing him the posts i'm liking like i'm a curator so i i find different pieces of art etc on there i I've had like all of these saved galleries etc and i was like this is just feeding their algorithm and making their platform their ai savvier to dupe other people you know Facebook made over a hundred billion dollars in 2017. How much of that money goes back to the 
billions of people on their platforms directly. None of it. And no one's asking these questions and no one's trying to be a digital organizer and to break mm. down these multinational mega billion, multi-billion dollar companies and be like, where is all that money going? Part of my divesting from Instagram was reinvesting in more um, impactful communication technology. And that's why the portal, I'm telling everyone needs to come and experience the portal because you step in and you're in this like internet box and you're talking with someone halfway across the world full body like they're in the same room i'm telling you the kinds of conversations and connections that happen in the portal i was in this connection with legos like two weekends ago and this like auntie walks in just looking so beautiful and powerful i'm like who are you and then the person she walks in with is like oh do you know fella kuti i was like yeah she's like oh this is his daughter his firstborn daughter and i was like what and we just spend like 20 minutes you know this is something at the, portal. the museum that you're doing yeah and we have portals in 40 cities across the globe and i really feel like projects like that things that get you immersed and really genuinely connecting with other people not curating yourself to be to have this image you know to be communicated well to not people, in the algorithm outside yeah of the algorithm. outside of the algorithm being like how can we just empower human to human connection and i think we need to remember that these platforms have only been up for like 12 years it's really we it would be easy to take them down if we if we right if we yeah. really actually banded together and thought about it it's not like the most impossible thing to be like facebook won't exist in 20 years but it's scary because multinational companies have money and resources and they silence people when i started posting about divest from instagram i was getting messages from facebook employees and instagram employees and i was like wow y'all are like seriously surveilling me and i felt unsafe and that was another reason i what had were to the leave. messages you know they were like yo i really like this idea of divestment i want to pitch this to leadership you know i had someone message me um from instagram they also all were like oh don't tell anyone i'm saying this there was someone who messaged me from instagram being like i can confirm that the algorithm is not anti-revolutionary we don't downplay any posts that have revolution on them etc and i'm just like you can tell me all of these things but i've been on this wow. platform for seven years and i'm like with other people who post certain kinds of content and i know what makes it to the top of the feed and i know what doesn't and i know that instagram is not promoting revolution because if we were actually doing revolutionary work on there we wouldn't all be addicted just scrolling you know, it's creating a mind numb society. Well, they would have to get rid of the likes. They'd have to get rid of followers. They'd have to become truly a Democrat, truly, you know. Exactly. They w all of that would have to go. So last question. What yeah. does self-acceptance mean to you? Self-acceptance means not compromising based off of others' expectations. Um, and it means being gentle enough to you know identify where you need to grow but also gentle enough to understand that your own growth is a process so for me at least i'm thinking on a personal level like self-acceptance is like thinking about decisions i've made in my life and you know visions that i have for myself that might not be what i had five years ago or something like that um and so, yeah, it, I guess it's holding those two things. Um, but also, let me sit with it for a moment. Yeah, self-acceptance means allowing yourself to feel things, good or bad. So, like that self-acceptance is the defrosting. It's like an opening mm. into the heart, right? Yeah. Perfect ending. That was beautiful. Thank you so <laughs> much. 
A huge and heartfelt thank you to Chantal Lingerie for sponsoring this episode and for their continued belief in the power of radical honesty as a path toward self-acceptance. Chantal Lingerie listens and adapts to women's needs and fit testing on real women allows them to adjust bras to the millimeter for a perfect fit from A to H cups. Because when you feel comfortable, your inner style and confidence will shine through. For a lingerie that inspires and reflects the inner you, get free shipping on any order with the code STYLE. That's Chantal.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. We hope you are inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by sharing this episode, subscribing to our podcast, and joining us on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash you to support our work and help us build a world where everyone feels comfortable and safe in their own skin. And if you fall in love with each of our guests as much as we do, you can see them in their full self-expression by subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at style like you. That's the letter U instead of the word U. And check out our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There is no finding oneself when glossing over the truth.